I'm Alex Clark, and in this month's podcast, I'm joined by Simon Sharma, historian, writer, journalist and presenter of more than 50 films for the BBC. Simon came into our London studio to talk about his new book, Belonging, the story of the Jews, 1492 to 1900. Simon, thank you so much for sparing a few minutes to come oh, and talk to us. But you are goodness, so, yeah. so, so busy at the minute, aren't you? <laughs> What's the alternative? <laughs> now, I, rem- I, rem- I remember, Alex, that um, there's a lovely song by, do you like George Moustaki? He said, um, the time to sleep is when you're dead, you know, just kind of my philosophy. I, I guess. But you are really uh, often on planes, on book tours. And in the midst of all this activity, here comes this... <laughs> chunk of a book this really i've i've actually had a proof copy of it and so today Mm. is the first time i've held this in my hand and it is a it is a wonderful looking uh piece of work yes you know i mean one of the things um to everybody i i'm this is not due to me at all although we had discussions at random house about how it might look and um but it's entirely to their credit it seems to me this if you want to have an object that's a case for print and paper reading Rather than electronic reading, this is it, really. So Absolutely. I'm very happy it's, with that. It's wonderful. Now, it needs to be a big book uh, because it tells the story of the Jews. Um, that is its subtitle, 1492 to 1900. Mm. Um, belonging. So it is right. the second volume of yeah. your of your history. Just Just tell us about belonging. What does that refer to? Really, whether or not it's possible to live two kinds of life at the same time in the same place, which has turned out to be a big theme in our own lives right now, of course, Mm. meaning can you actually be fully of the country in which you settle, either by choice or much more often not by choice, and lead a Jewish life? Um, And is it harder in a Christian society or a Muslim society or in none of the above? But it is essentially about... um, being able to do that richly in both cases. Uh, not in the book, but, you know, my dad, um, on Saturdays, we would go to synagogue. And on Sundays, he was, he after tea, he'd always read Dickens. And he was, and I, I realized when I was writing this, I remembered all that, and out loud, that is. And um, he felt indivisibly about it, British English in particular, and, and very deeply and observantly Jewish. And um, Britain is one of the few places where it's been possible to do that. Not always, um, but possible to do that. But um, this has become, astonishingly, you know, a huge issue for the world now. Yes, absolutely. And I didn't, when I when I chose the title, actually, but which was quite a long time ago, or rather a good friend of mine um, thought, she said, well, the book is about belonging. And I said, yes, that's the title. And I absolutely hadn't meant it to be an echo of the zeitgeist of where we are now at all. Mm. It actually wrote itself in that way. And um, what I was doing and why the book is as bulky as it is, is that I did really want to make that story. I wanted to include success stories. And the American story is by and large a success story. The British story is not a catastrophic story. And there's one extraordinary story of Jews living in classical Ming China, which is... Um, 
which is a sort of success story in that they don't face persecution or ghettoization or expulsion, but they do, as a result of a kind of success, melt into the host society very quickly. But I wanted to actually choose places the Jews had been for a considerable period of time that were not just Vienna and Berlin and um, the places and, that we traditionally associate. Yes, with exactly. Jewish life. Most Jewish mm. histories are two things. They are about. Um, they're about the Ashkenazi world, if they're about the Sephardi world, they're mostly about the so-called golden age in Spain. And they're also, for very good reasons, which I, I don't mean to disrespect and haven't ignored, histories of high philosophical thinkers and rabbis and rabbinics. And those are essentially histories of Judaism. And I know the rabbis, I hope they won't frown too hard. My own rabbi seems to like it, which is a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> don't, um, don't irritate but she the is rabbi. But she is very broad-minded. <laughs> and, uh, but this, I wanted to have the experience of Jews in every conceivable manner of life. And when I was reading the proofs, I thought, mm, there are too many of these lists. But I was very, I always love, I'm a terrible sack of lists. And um, there are places like, in Istanbul in the 16th century or um, places like Brody in Polish Galicia in the 18th century where, you know, the, it's not just like Fiddler on the Roof. It's not just like kind of one cow town and a rabbi and a matchmaker, matchmaker, matchmaker. Almost every conceivable profession from tanner to jeweller to artist to cop to, you know, it was possible for Jews to lose. So I wanted... Um, to explore that full, various richness of mm -hmm. life in both place and social, you know, social life. And you really do. Of course, the story of people, a diaspora, of yeah. any diaspora, is the story of where people come from as well as yes. where they end up. So the Jewish people whose stories you tell in this book have also come from all sorts of places, haven't they? It's yes, they have. That... Connecting those dots, I mean, how complicated that must have been. <laughs> well, I'm, I, on my side, for the connections, you're absolutely right, um, is the Bible and the Torah in particular, you know, the, the first five books of Moses that's read every week. And um, at, what happens over the course of that book is the kind of compilations of how to live Jewishly. Um, and one of the interesting things, moments when, um, for the first time in Italy, and then again happens in England, when wonderful fellow Manasseh ben Israel is trying to justify the resettlement of readmission of Jews into Oliver Cromwell's England. What happens then is explanation of what a Jewish life is, what circumcision is, what a wedding's like, what happens on Saturday in synagogue, and so on, to those who only have terrible stereotypes, mm. you know, of these awful people who talk this gibberish and whose only allegiance is to each other and sometimes cut the throats of Christians in order to make Passover matzah and these <coughs> horrible things, but also sometimes just gossipy ignorance. So you have a kind of reaching out and you have reaching out in both directions. And that sort of that sort of interested me a lot, points of convergence, I think. It's one of the things that, that um, you were sort of alluding to uh, at the beginning. It set off in my mind the thought that if you have uh, a people who scatter across the world widely and their identity becomes melded, of course, into the place where they've gone, yeah. how they begin to retain a feeling of having something in common with one another yeah. across those places, and whether they do, and whether it yeah. is possible. And I, I think that's something you do well, look at a Well, a big part of the first part of the book um, is, is 
I hope, you know, quite moving for people because it is actually people have had to live as secret Jews in Spain and Portugal mm. and who actually go through a kind of underground railroad to get to safety, first to places like Venice and Ferrara. And then when the Inquisition gets really hot in the middle of the 16th century, a terrible papal degree called cum nimis absurdum, reimposes dress distinctions, burns the Talmud. There are auto da fes in Italy of people who are discovered to be secret Jews. They then move on to the Ottoman Empire, which is more welcoming. So the first part of the book is really about these people who actually come back to Judaism. And if they're men, they're going to have undergo adult circumcision, which is kind of that tests your. I'm not sure how I would how to made up my mind actually, <laughs> but that certainly tests your determination. But they pretty much immediately um, embrace, to a greater or a lesser degree, the day to day life of what it's like to be a Jew, which doesn't get in the way of the life of being an Amsterdamer or a Londoner or needn't any more than it than it does today. Um, later on in the 19th century, they have to decide. What kind of Jew? Does it, it, are they going to be stuck in a rather narrow version of what, for example, a woman can or can't do? Um, uh, you know, how, um, whether or not you can have music in a synagogue, whether you'd rather like an organ or you'd rather like a violinist or something. That's still an argument that goes on in Jewish communities today. So you have an internal argument about how to keep Jewish. But a big, big feature which has both glory and disaster built into it is every so often the book begins and ends with that someone comes along and says enough of struggling with this double identity off to Jerusalem we go and sometimes that person is overtly a messiah like Shabbatai Sfi sometimes he says well I come from the land of the lost tribes like David the Reubenite with whom I start or sometimes he's neither of the above but he suddenly is possessed by his historic destiny, as in the case of Theodor Herzl. So mm. at that point, um, there's a kind of voltage surge of what it means to be Jewish. Uh, uh, there's a scene towards the end of the book where Herzl, who really speaks almost no English at all, appears in Whitechapel on a kind of hot summer night. And um, he himself is extraordinarily disconcerted by an absolutely packed, loud intensely expectant crowd, even of people who have no intention of leaving London to go to Israel, mm -hmm. because they see him as actually unlocking the doors to a kind of new, um, unapologetic Jewish future. So every so often you have that. And that is a great binder together, for better or worse. Do you feel that we have that now? I, I say that really conscious that having read novels recently by... Jonathan Safran Foer, for example, right. or Michael Chabon, yeah. there is this sense of really grappling with the ideas of Jewish identity and what they mean in this particular era. And I wonder if if you think that we are going through that that surge or Judaism well, is I going think that, that surge. No, I, th I think the grappling moment never goes away. Mm. And is it particularly intense now? I think it's become a bit more intense because of um, this sort of nasty kind of you know, um, toxic within the air of xenophobia that's going around. Yes. So I think the kind of tendency to group cluster has been a bit stronger. But I think obviously there is, in America where I live most of the time, there is bitter division, and there should be, I think, actually, among the Jewish community about Israel. So I think yes. if you do ask that question 
in the, to me, to the kind of 13 or 14-year-old me in the 1950s, I would have said, well, Israel, because it's mostly a secular society and so on, and was built defensively, and uh, that is clearly, you know, that produces a kind of surge of electric voltage of communal brotherly and sisterly identity, but now it's enormously more complicated. Because two sets of Jewish values, the values of treating your neighbor as you would treat yourself. I mean, it, Jesus basically plagiarized Rabbi Hillel, who was almost a contemporary, who said, um, very interestingly, Rabbi Hillel says, do not do unto others what you don't want done to yourself. So Jesus very brilliantly flips it, actually. But that is deeply, deeply ingrained. Be good to strangers because you were a stranger once in the land yourself, referring to Egypt. So this is very, very inside the deepest marrow of of collective Jewish life. And then there's a very adamant form of religious observant orthodoxy and militant Israeli nationalism. So this this causes trouble. So the surge issue is full of immense complications Mm. now, and they are complications about belonging. That will be for volume three to sort of catch up to now. Yes, your work is not done, is it? No, I fear not. One of the um, characteristics... um, one of the things ingrained in in the Jewish identity, it has always struck me, because Jewish people have told me it's so, um, is the love of debate and argument, the disputatiousness. Yes, the Talmud is one long row, really, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And that is a brilliant thing to write about, It's actually in... Yes, I I didn't write... Well, to a point I do. It's a bit in volume one. I mean, the Bible, everyone forgets there are two accounts of the creation, actually. (laughs) Genesis, not one. So it starts out with a kind of he said, she said version of how the world started. Then um, I once gave a lecture called Our Locusts Kosher. Um, Because actually in Leviticus, they are. They're regarded as crunchy birds, very small crunchy birds. And that's okay. But by the time you get to Deuteronomy, they're real hard asses. And the writers of Deuteronomy said, no, they're horrible, creeping, disgusting, swarming things. And they're absolutely a kind of biological anomaly and you don't eat them. Uh, which didn't stop, actually, there being recipes for baked locusts in the Yemeni Jewish tradition. Interestingly enough, <laughs> they eat us, we eat them. Uh, it's an old Jewish tradition. Uh, no. Um, but... Um, it's debate is is um, loudness is important. A lot of the mo- there are a lot of moments in the book uh, where um, Gentiles who've actually got quite close, very sweetly and sympathetically to rabbis, they both have an interest. You know, the Jews are inevitably part of the long term Christian narrative because mm. the second coming of, of the Savior won't happen until Jews converted and. Um, that, but what is very touching is when that immediate conversionary instinct is parked and there's a coming together uh, in Hebrew literature, for example, um, that happens once there's a scene early on in a book between a rabbi and a, a famous cardinal of Viterbo, which is a genuine friendship. Then it happens again between a Protestant, rather unorthodox Protestant pastor called Anna Barrell and the famous, I call him the first Bible showman who specializes in models of Solomon's temple. They also, they actually extraordinarily collaborate on um, how the Mishnah, the code of law, can be sounded and read out loud because the original text didn't give any clue. So that sort of thing, you, uh, that sort of thing really, um, you, you hear voices. And I think even more than debate, I was very concerned to build the book around 
people being able to listen to voices. So autobiographies, either true autobiographies, like Daniel Mendoza, the British Jewish boxing champ in the late 18th, early 19th century, or um, slightly indirect autobiographies, like the actor-manager in 16th century Mantua, Leone di Sommi. Um, that was very important, or well, the wonderful Jewish poetess in in Venice, Sara Capilla, who we know through her letters to um, an elderly diplomat who's trying to convert her. Um, I want I absolutely wherever I could using diaries and letters and particularly autobiographies to get those. Um, None of these autobiographies are not like Emily Dickinson. None of them are demure and contained and constrained. <laughs> You'll be flabbergasted to hear. No, they're Everything, rowdy affairs. Um, very yeah. rowdy. Yeah. And masses of outpouring, you know, sometimes like Woody Allen on speed. You know? <laughs> and those stories are fascinating. They crop up yeah. throughout the book. I can't imagine how you decide what to leave out. They're, loads, loads. There just yeah. must be lots. But luckily they're... they're is another volume. There is another volume. Um, yeah. And of course, this is not your only project by any means. You've been no. working on on the as the reboot, I suppose we might call it, of, yeah. of civilization, um, which I, I think for a, a, was so loomed so large in my childhood mm. as a TV series and as a book. Um, and I wonder, quite a lot of it must be sort of explaining what it is to younger people, mustn't it? Yes, I don't know if that's... I mean, we're not actually going to do that very much. I think we may in, in public appearances and, and it for, you know, hubristically, um, our masters decided to call this series Civilizations in the Plural um, because it's uh, an attempt to tackle world art, but not, which Kenneth Clark did not. But the notion that we are trying, in some sense, to surpass him is a fool's errand because we're never going to do that. It remains a masterpiece of its Absolutely. time. Absolutely. But it's a but companion I, and, a, and a sort of I, I, another it, part of the story. It's a sort of, um, yes, it's another part of the story, mm, exactly. Mm. And I think what we've all tried, and I say we all, uh, I'm doing it along with Mary Beard and uh, the classical historian and with David Olasoga. Um, and um, who's specialists in kind of African history. And um, and what we've all tried to do, really, rather than say, and now five minutes for Japan, you know, um, is actually to trace true organic connections, mm. really, um, and or parallelisms that are not simply coincidental. There's, uh, for example, in one of the films, of my film's called Radiance, which is really about colour, um, we look at the discovery of Japanese, you know, blazingly glorious Japanese color woodprints. But then we look at really what that meant to Van Gogh and to Monet um, in particular. I mean, Monet had 231 of those prints. And Van Gogh actually paints um, a man called Pierre Tanguy, who was his supplier of paints and brushes. But he, the entire wall behind him is covered with... Japanese prints, which actually were probably owned by Vincent's brother, mm. although Vincent himself owned it. So you have a kind of, a, very often when you have these big canonical histories of world art, they either do, and now we do African history, or African art in one chapter. They seldom are brought together in a way which we hope we're doing. I mean, as a conscious, another one of my programs, uh, the one on the High Renaissance and the Baroque, is what we called, not in the script, but when we were making it, a dome-off between um, <laughs> Sinan, who's Suleiman the Magnificent's Turkish architect, building um, the great Suleimania Mosque in Istanbul, and Michelangelo, who's trying and failing 
um, to complete the dome of the Basilica of St. Peter's. Mm. And they both know what each other's doing. Both the Turks send a little kind of delegation to stand rather happily in the incomplete rubble of St. Peter's. And so there is there is a sense in which uh, they're, they're both aiming to do better than Hagia Sophia. That's the idea, which is standing yes. there yes. in the mind of the popes and in the city of the sultans. So there are things like that where you have a kind of natural confluence of different cultures coming together in mutual admiration or, or, or um, bitter competition. It's so fascinating. I can't wait to see it. It's going to be sort of next <laughs> next year, next spring yes, sometime, next, or early next spring. early spring. Yeah, early spring. Yeah. I just don't know how you find time also to be so incredibly cross with President Trump yeah, on someone has to. Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are plenty of them, but I think you do it extremely eloquently and extremely rowdily and boist- yes, thank boisterously. Thank so you. don't stop doing that. Right. Thank you very, very much. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to our special podcast with Simon Sharma. If you enjoy the Vintage Podcast, why not rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on, as it'll help us reach more book lovers. See you next time. <laughs>